Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. This morning, I want to direct your attention to the Word of God that comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. We've been working our way through the beginning of a great sermon which which Jesus preached on the side of a mountain many, many years ago. And he opened that sermon with a list of eight qualities of a person who receives the blessing of God. And we've been defining blessing as God's joyful and loving approval of a human being. His way of saying, I am so glad you're my kid. I approve of your life. I delight in you. And Jesus began his sermon by saying, every person who gets to know there is a God longs for that kind of loving, joyful approval. But who will get the approval of God? Who is the person who God blesses? Everybody wants the the blessing of God, but who is it who actually receives that blessing? And as he began this sermon with what we have come uh, come to call the Beatitudes, I'm sure the original audience, just like us, are a little bit shocked at what Jesus is saying because as he gives this list of the person who is blessed by God, It's really revolutionary. He's turning conventional wisdom on its head. I want you to just think about what he says here in this final beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, And falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you look at the Beatitudes, it's as if Jesus is drawing a contrast between the way the world thinks and the way he thinks and the way his father thinks. Think about who the world considers to be a blessed human being and then listen to what Jesus says is a blessed human being. The world says that a person who can stand on their own merits, who walks into a room confident that they're one of the good guys, that they've earned the blessings they get, that's a blessed person. But Jesus says, blessed is the person who recognizes their spiritual poverty, that they have nothing to offer in trade with God for his blessing. That we all come to God as beggars saying, I don't have a leg to stand on. The world says, blessed are those who are carefree and happy all the time. Whose faces aren't long and drawn. Who live in a world where there's nothing going wrong. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn and grieve over their own sin and the sin that fills our world that they recognize it's not okay to live in a world where this kind of stuff is everywhere. The world says, 
Blessed are those who assert and defend themselves, who speak up for themselves, who don't get pushed around. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek, even in cases when retaliation is justified. Blessed are those who can be gentle, even when the world would understand they're lashing out. The world says, blessed are those who have everything they want and need. And Jesus says, blessed are those who never stop hungering and thirsting for the righteousness that comes from God. The world says, blessed are those who never get taken advantage of. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are merciful to those who are hurtful and to those who are hurting. The world says, blessed are those who live without the burden of guilty feelings. Jesus says, blessed are those who pursue God with a pure and undivided heart. The world says, blessed are those who win all of their arguments and conflicts. And Jesus says, blessed are those who actively work to make peace with God and with their fellow human being. Do you understand that this is supposed to shock people? And if it doesn't shock you, it means you're not actually paying attention. Because the way that Jesus describes life on this planet, reality, is shockingly different than the way that most people come to think of it. And with this last and final beatitude, he doesn't break the pattern. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for their faith, insulted, slandered, attacked because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And that, that persecution is going to come in a lot of ways. It can come verbally. It can come socially as people turn their backs on you, unfriend you. It can come financially or legally. And for many people, it comes even physically. What Jesus says, and this is perhaps the most shocking of all the Beatitudes, is even when you are being attacked because of where you stand with me, you need to pause and understand that you are a blessed human being. I want to give two points this morning that help us understand just exactly what Jesus is saying. The first is I want to look at the target of this persecution. Who and what is being persecuted, and what is it exactly that Jesus is blessing? Notice carefully that he's saying blessed are those who are persecuted, but it is not the persecution per se that is being blessed. He's not saying because you've experienced persecution, I'm going to give you a reward for that, as though it is compensation for pain and suffering. That's not the spirit of what Jesus is saying at all. He is not saying because you suffered and were persecuted, I'm going to give you a great reward and a blessing. What he's saying is, in order to get persecuted this way, you've got to be living a certain way. 
And what he's blessing is the kind of life that gets persecuted by the world who does not love Jesus. Here's another way of saying it. The Christian who never boldly speaks or lives because of their faith in Jesus will be left alone by the world. The world will not have a problem with such a Christian. Jesus himself said it in John 15, 18 to 20. Listen carefully to the words of Jesus. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally, naturally, inevitably, they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. What Jesus is saying as a matter of certainty and inevitability is that if you live faithfully for him, this world will have a problem with you. It won't like you very much. It won't leave you alone. Some of you know that I play basketball every Monday morning with a bunch of pastors. It's one of the best times of my week. I cherish it. Last week, one dude rammed his head into my ribs, almost broke the rib. I thought it was broken, so I'm out for a few weeks, and I'm grieving. But I learned something playing basketball with these guys. If the opposing team never bothers to guard you or contest your shot, that's not a compliment, that's an insult. See, when I play basketball, there's always a couple guys that don't play basketball but want a fellowship. They come out, and everybody runs together, but nobody really gets on them. When you play against a guy who's not a threat and you're playing man-on-man defense, somebody gets to double up because that guy's not going to bother anyone. So you'll notice that there'll be a guy on the floor who nobody is guarding. He shouldn't be like, wow, I must be good. Nobody's guarding me. That's an insult. What it says is, we can leave you alone because you cannot hurt us. You can take a wide-open three. We'll give it to you because you're not going to make that shot. And I worry that for some Christians, the peace they have with the world is not because they've been winsome and gracious and loving and serving, but because the world can't tell any difference between them and us. That the peace we maintain with the world is not a real peace won through Christ-like character and serving, but because they actually don't realize we're any different from them. They don't perceive a threat in us in the way that we speak or live or believe. And so they leave us alone. The New Testament is filled with promises that those who live for Jesus, it's not might, it's will, as a matter of certainty, will face persecution. I mean, look at a couple of these examples. You will be hated by everyone because of me, Jesus says. He says, near the end times, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. Paul writes to Timothy, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's crazy. 
don't know if you've been in church too long that you just read that and be like, all right, move on. That's for you and me. If you actually want to live a righteous life for Christ, you will be persecuted, which is another way of saying if you're never persecuted, you're doing something wrong. The world isn't supposed to be so comfortable with Christ followers. We're not supposed to blend in so seamlessly that they cannot tell that what we believe and who we stand for is an affront to the worldly way of living and doing life. Acts 14.22 says, We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. This leaves no doubt that if you live faithfully for Jesus, trouble is going to find you. And it won't just be incidental contact. It'll be intentional, directed persecution because the world does not like who you serve and what you stand for. Now, don't get the wrong idea. Not everybody who gets persecuted in a religious context is going to get this blessing. This is not a blanket blessing for everybody who's ever run afoul of others in the name of religion. A lot of people are stirring up all kinds of persecution, not because they, they represent Jesus, but because they're jerks. Uh, you, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? And there are plenty of people like that. And so Jesus makes it clear, the blessing is for those who are persecuted, but persecuted directly because of righteousness. There's no honor in being persecuted by the world because you're a hypocrite or because you're judgmental or self-righteous or ungracious. There's no honor in that kind of persecution. That's just what we deserve for not being good human beings. But even if we are above reproach, even if we are loving and gracious and humble, if we tell the truth about what we really believe and upon whom we have staked all of our faith and confidence, the world will hear that and have a problem with what we say. Even if the things we believe and choose are matters of personal and private conviction, that we're not saying anything against anybody else, but we're simply saying, I choose not to do a certain thing simply because of my own conscience. I'm amazed how many times Christians have made a choice like that and are nonetheless still persecuted by people. The Apostle Peter shed a little light on why this happens, why sometimes the world persecutes Christians even though we're not trying to condemn or judge them. Here's what he said. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery and lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing in detestable idolatry. And listen, he says, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse upon you. Now again, I've got to remind you, there's no blessing in being persecuted because you are obnoxious or hypocritical. There's no honor in that kind of persecution. But even when we are gracious and humble, sometimes when we make a stand on an issue, even out of private conviction people will have a very strong opinion about what we say. And at times, by our non-participation in the ways of the world, they will feel judged by our choice, regardless of what we've said or done. 
Let me give you an example, okay? And this is not to judge anybody who's done this. Please understand, I'm just drawing an example for illustrative purposes, okay? But let's suppose a Christian just makes a personal choice in their minds, in their hearts, that they will never vacation in Las Vegas. God's blessings to all of you who have vacationed in Las Vegas in the past. Please don't feel condemned or judged. But listen, it's a city called Sin City, not because judgmental Christians gave it that name, but they gleefully called it call it that themselves. It's Sin City. It's a place where what happens there, everybody gets a free pass in Vegas. So you can understand that as a matter of conscience, it's not hard to imagine why some Christ followers might just choose to give that city a wide berth and say, you know, there's a lot of places to have fun. That's just one city I won't go to to enjoy myself. Now, even if they've never condemned or judged somebody else who's made that choice, I want you to imagine that that person who has made a private choice of conviction and conscience, is part of a group of friends who excitedly says, hey guys, this spring, let's all go to Vegas as a group. And everyone's excited, talking about it, planning which hotel they're going to stay at. And then they turn to you and say, hey, you're going to come, right? And you say to them, oh, yeah, I think we're going to pass this year. And they say, why? Well, you know, it's just a personal thing. And they press you, and they press you, and they press you. And finally you say to them, If you really must know, you've asked for it, so I'm just going to tell you, for us it's just a matter of personal conviction and conscience. We've made a decision not to do that. Now in that moment, most people I know today will be very civilized. They'll be like, oh, that's great, cool. But I also know that most people, the minute you walk out of the room, they're like, all right. Class, that's what we call a Pharisee. And... Maybe not, but maybe so. For the purpose of my illustration, let's just imagine that that's what they do. Because that kind of scenario plays out again and again. That when we don't join people in something they think is okay, our choice just somehow... It's like when you're... Here's another example. Sometimes we go eat lunch as a staff. And I remember before um, there was Pastor Matt was here and now with Pastor Jared, those two guys so obnoxiously make good eating choices all the time. And sometimes I go to a place and I just, I want a greasy burger. And then Pastor Jared, it's his turn. He's like, I'll have a salad and water. I'm like, doggone it. Seriously, can you just order a steak? Just want something. But you know what it is, is he's making a personal choice. But when I see him order a salad and water, it makes me feel foul and disgusting. It's hard for me to order what I want. And it's not even his fault. He makes a choice, and his non-participation in self-destruction makes me feel bad. Do you understand that principle? And he's not even being obnoxious about it, but just something about his principles bothers me. We're not supposed to invite persecution because we've been ungracious and duplicitous in our living. But if we live faithfully for Christ, that persecution is going to come. If you've never experienced persecution as a direct result of a stand for righteousness, I think it's important to do some soul-searching about the way that we interact with the world around us. I love how 
Professor D, and there's a picture of Vegas in case you don't know what it looks like. Um, I'm going to skip past it because some of you won't be able to get out of that loop. Um, Listen to what Professor D.A. Carson says about this. These are piercing words. This final beatitude becomes one of the most searching of all of them and binds up the rest. For if the disciple of Jesus never experiences any persecution at all, it may be fairly asked where righteousness is being displayed in his life. Just let that sink in for a second. That if the world that does not love Jesus has no problem with you ever, looks at you and passes you the ball because they don't realize you're not the other team, what does it say about the way you're playing the game? I think in basketball, the worst insult is when they pass you the ball and like, oh, dude, I didn't even realize you're on the other team. What? Yeah, man, sorry about that. Now, I'm not trying to create this us versus them picture. So if that's where you're hung up, please get over it. That's not what I'm saying at all. But by definition, when you talk about something as divisive as salvation and kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the world... There is, without any contentiousness, by definition, there is an us and them. If you don't understand that, you're wasting your time in this building. You should be at home sleeping. What folly to be at church if you actually don't believe there's any distinction between those who know Jesus and those who don't. Go mountain biking, get some sleep, go to Starbucks and read a book. There is a difference between those who know and love Jesus and those who don't whose lives are moving towards God, and those whose lives are moving away from Him. If we cannot accept that, we need to wake up and consider what we believe. And those distinctions are not because of temperament or lifestyle or all of that alone. They are because of where we have placed our faith and our hope, in whom we have trusted, who we live for, where we believe we are destined to go. And that's why Jesus adds the other qualifier. The person who is blessed is the one who is persecuted, not just because of righteousness, but because of him. This is what distinguishes righteousness from self-righteousness. Because I think it's possible to get all caught up in a social agenda, a cause, a matter of justice, and be so angry about it and such a crusader that you fight for, get in people's faces, and you do make a stand for righteousness But at some point, it can stop being about Jesus and for his sake and start becoming about righteous anger. Frustration at the way the world is. And so what he says is the best kind of persecution is the one that comes to us not just because we make a stand that's different from the world, but because we do so out of personal loyalty to our Savior. That's how we know that we're not just being obnoxiously self-righteous, but we're bearing the weight of persecution because we would rather be faithful to him than avoid the enmity of the people around us. In verse 12, Jesus says, Be glad because if this is the kind of persecution you endure, then it's just like the prophets who were persecuted before you. 
Why does he mention the prophets? Because the prophets were men who spoke and acted for God as his instruments without compromise. I watched a funny skit on SNL where they were auditioning people for 12 years a slave, and these people were so uncomfortable with some of the lines they would have to say, and it cracked me up because they're like, I can't read that. Not even for an audition. I just can't read those words. And there are times when I'm sure the prophets went to meet with God, and God said, here's what I want you to say to all the people. And I can, I just imagine, um, I don't know why, I picture the, the prophet having Ben Stiller's face and just being like, you want me to go back to those people and say that? Yeah, that's what I want you to say to them. They're going to kill me. They're going to really not like that. Are you sure this is what you want to say? And God says to the prophet, yeah, that's exactly what I want you to do. And I want you to think about the choice that the prophet had in that moment. God says, say this, do this because it honors me. And the prophet's mind says, yeah, but if I do that, everyone's going to crucify me. I'm reminded of how much the, the, the Christians nationwide just jumped on top of Joel Osteen when he appeared on Larry King. Joel Osteen passes a church of like a million people in Houston. Not literally a million, but I mean, they they meet every Sunday in the former Houston Rockets Arena. It's a massive church. So he's one of the most influential pastors in the country. And Larry King corners him and goes, I got to ask you straight up, point blank. So are you saying that if I don't believe in your Jesus, I'm going to hell? And all the other good people who don't believe in Jesus are going to hell? And, you know, you remember seeing, right, Joel? (laughs) he's like on the spot what an awful place because that's not a real question it's not an invitation to a conversation it's a trap it's a trap meant to out someone so that everybody could collectively hate on them and what they stand for and I can tell you that a lot of Christian self-righteousness were like great you have like 40,000 people in your church a national platform you get on TV and that's what you say about Jesus because man he waffled it big time well, you know what, Larry? I, it's not for me to judge and, and all that. And we all jumped on like, dude, grow a pair. Come on. I, I got to be honest with you. I'm not so sure how I would have done. When the cameras pointed at me, and I know exactly what everybody's waiting to feel about me. And suddenly I'm no longer a human being with a position and a belief. I symbolize a movement and a reprehensible idea. And all the stones meant for God are going to be thrown at me because they can't see God, but I'm right there. I've been lured into traps like that many times. And unlike you guys, I've always got that little voice in the back of my mind, you're a pastor, you don't have a choice, you've got to answer this one. Look on it. And so I answer. And I'm kicked and pummeled. And Jesus says, I will bless you in that moment, not because you took a brave stand, but because you chose it, knowing the cost, because you were more faithful to me than to your well-being, more faithful to my reputation than your own reputation. 
And it strikes me that that's becoming more and more of a challenge for those of us who follow Jesus today. Because even as we are legitimately reworking some strong positions on issues of great social significance, we don't have a, an open forum to really work all that stuff out. We have a very contentious environment in which to work it out. There are certain hot-button issues. The minute you out yourself as having a position, you're going to get destroyed. There is no conversation any longer. You'll be shouted out of the room. You will be rejected out of hand, even as you're trying to make up your mind what you believe. And Jesus said, if you will take that risk out of loyalty to me, you will indeed be blessed. Let's look finally at the reward of persecution. This is not a feel-good sermon, guys. I mean, it's, so far, it's kind of depressing. If you're doing it right, you're going to get the crud beat out of you. Amen. Go with God. How are you supposed to start a week hearing that on Sunday morning? Listen to what Jesus adds on top of all that. He says that the persecution is going to come for a lot of people, primarily verbally and socially. And I think that's true of us in America. In our context, it's very unlikely that that some of us will be physically attacked or put to death because of our stand for Jesus. Our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world are enduring that and experiencing it even today. But in our context, and because I'm preaching in Hoffman Estates, Illinois, I want to be contextually relevant, you probably will not get beaten up. Maybe you will, but it's likely you won't. But I think it's far more likely that you will endure social and verbal assault because of your stand for Jesus. One form of assault or persecution is insults. Just think about the way that the media portrays Christians in movies and television shows. How many flattering images of people of faith have you seen lately on television and in the movies? I'm, I'm dating myself, but right away when I think of media portrayals of us, I think Ned Flanders, hi, diddly-ho, neighbor, right? Or I think of church lady, Dana Carvey's SNL character. Do you remember her? And it's not like they're making fun of Jewish people and Muslim people and Buddhist people. It's primarily Christians that are getting wailed on. There's open season on Christians, and the portrayal of Christians is not much better than portrayal of fathers in the media. We're made to look like narrow-minded, bigoted, backwards, unsophisticated buffoons. And the goal of an insult is exactly that. It intends to belittle and shame a person, to make them feel marginalized in the group, to make them feel like there's no way you could ever actually belong with us, fit in with us, because you're weird. You're deficient. You're less than. That's why people throw insults. And I know some of us are like, whatever, I don't care at all what people think. I'm glad that you have a very well-defined identity, that you have good self-awareness. I don't want to shake that, but let me just say this to you. You're supposed to care what people think. It's a mark of sociopaths that they're completely immune to the words and feelings and thoughts of other people. It is normal and human to be affected emotionally by the words 
in the treatment of others. And when the world hurls its insults, it does hurt. It's meant to hurt. It's supposed to be part of the cost of living for Jesus in a world that is not friendly to him at all. So I think it's okay to acknowledge when people make me feel stupid for being a Christian. I mean, I've had people say, hold on, do you really believe that everything we see here, God just said it. Let there be a universe, and boom, it just existed. You really believe that? And as they're smiling, it's not like, oh, I'm interested to hear what you say. It's like, let the dummy speak now. Do you really believe that? Gone. And what they're saying is, we can't wait to laugh at you. You really believe that Jesus is going to come back one day, split the sky, there's going to be trumpets in heaven, and he's going to ride down on a white horse from heaven, and all the dead people are going to pop out of their graves and rise up, and you're like, uh, yeah, I guess. You really believe that when you die, you're going to actually go to a place called heaven? You really believe that God thinks this is wrong? That he has a problem with this? Yeah, I actually, I do. I don't have much choice in it. I I believe that's what he said. It's not easy to feel what comes after. I don't don't want to sit here and preach like I'm always good in those situations. I'm going to tell you that it is extremely challenging to say what is true and not what is popular. He says another form of spiritual persecution is slander or defamation. When people say things about you that are wicked and also patently false. It's a public mischaracterization of who you are and what you stand for. Starting from the earliest days of the church when they heard that they, the Christians had something called a love feast. That's what they called the communion. I think that's probably because they really made a bad choice of words. I wouldn't have called it a love feast because the ancient Romans said, these Jews are having orgies. They all come to this house, they shut the doors, and then we hear that brothers and sisters are loving one another in a love feast. So they said, they said Christians have incestuous orgies all the time. So not true, but enough disdain existed in society to start believing that. I've been asked my view on certain hot-button issues, and the moment I answer what I earnestly believe the Bible says, what God tells us, I'm mischaracterized as bigoted, hateful, Judgmental, mean-spirited. It's possible for a Christian to be all those things and espouse those views, but if you know me, that isn't who I am, but I've been lumped in with all the others because I realize that people don't want to listen to anybody anymore. They don't actually want to have a conversation. They just want to know, who am I supposed to hate, and are you one of them? And it's hard to stand for something in America today. It's hard to actually have a real conversation with anyone. That's why I don't even bother with the Facebook, oh, I wish you wouldn't have said it quite like that, but I don't even bother because anybody who's putting stuff like that out there doesn't actually want to listen. They just want to shout. I don't even play. I just don't play anymore. 
I really appreciate people with whom I can have an opposing view and we can say, look, I care about you. I'm not going to defame your character, but I don't agree with what you're saying. Let's talk. Let's listen to each other. Unfortunately, that's not the climate that prevails in America today. Not politically, not socially, not theologically. And I think we can have the privilege of changing that to a great degree. So he says, this is what it feels like for many of you to get persecuted. And I said, by the way, this is the reward of persecution. So where's the reward? I mean, Jesus says, when this happens to you, rejoice. And he says it as a command. And any time a command is given in the Bible, it's because it's not natural to do what he's commanding. We would normally go the other way. So he says, when you're experiencing assault like this, insults, defamation of your character, make a choice to rejoice in what is happening to you. See, the experience of being persecuted is never enjoyable. Never. I've never been glad that people are calling me a bigot, a hate monger, a teetotaler, holier-than-thou, self-righteous, goody-two-shoes, Pharisee. I've been called lots. Have you been called some of those things? I've been called those things. It's never fun to be persecuted. The act of being persecuted is not what produces joy. But when Jesus says rejoice, what he's really saying is refocus. He's saying if you look at your present trouble... There is no joy to be had. But whenever this happens, whenever your earthly deal falls apart and you find yourself at the lowest moment, refocus and remember something that cannot be taken away from you. When the floor drops out from beneath you and you just don't want to be in your own life anymore. You know, like those Snickers commercials, going to be here a while. Those are great commercials. We're just in this terrible situation and you just feel, I don't want to be here anymore. I hate this. When will it stop? And when you're being persecuted and this earthly life starts to really fall apart and it feels like, I don't want to be here and I cannot seem to find a friend anywhere. I just want to, I want to find some safety. I just want to find a friend, an advocate and nothing. And you're just at your lowest point. In those moments, what Jesus says is, remember this, that at the lowest point of your earthly experience, great is the reward I have secured for you in heaven. Now, that's the ultimate church language ripoff, isn't it? <laughs> okay, thanks a lot, Pastor Dave. So everyone's kicking me while I'm down here like, hey, 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 remember heaven. After they've kicked you to death, you're going to have an awesome time, so just let them kick away. And you're like, <laughs> couldn't you maybe just block a couple of the kicks for me, do something? I, I mean, some of us hear that and we just shut down because we're like, is that the best that Jesus has to offer? I'm getting the crud beat out of me and his best is, hey, 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 remember though, someday it's going to be great. I think what Jesus is saying is this life down here isn't supposed to be where we anchor all of our hopes and joys. The truth is most of the time, we Christians are not very mindful of our eternal life. 
We don't think much about heaven and the life to come because we are too busy trying to recreate heaven or version of it down here. Think about how much of your energy and your resources are aimed at making this life feel a little bit like heaven. I'm going away on a trip for my 50th birthday this year with Jeannie, and we banked enough points to figure out anywhere we want to go in the world, we can go. We have, we're, we're like point millionaires. Not much cash, but we got a lot of points. And she keeps sending me these Groupon deals, and I'm like, I'm thinking, those are great prices, but I don't want to be restricted. I want options. I want the ultimate vacation for my 50th birthday. I want a trip to remember forever. What I realize is I'm willing to do weeks of research. I'm even ordering travel books, 300-page books detailing what it's like to go to Italy. Seriously, we work so hard at creating a little bit of heaven down here. But once in a while, that heaven turns into hell. And it's in those moments that Jesus says, let's just wipe away all the illusion for a minute. Think about what you're doing. Because when your heaven on earth turns to hell on earth, that's when the real heaven starts to look pretty good. And you remember, this is my destiny. It's not some small and symbolic hope, but it's a real hope. Our hope in heaven isn't supposed to be a lifeless and hollow thing. It's one of the greatest promises God holds out to us. It's one of the things we, prom- we trust in him for the most. It's an anchor point for our faith. And if at the lowest moments of our earthly life we cannot find real and sustaining courage and hope because of heaven and the great reward awaiting us, well, how can we say that we have put our faith in him if that does not produce real hope when we're in trouble? I would even go as far as to say that one of the most reliable proofs that we are born again is that the remembrance of our hope in heaven actually carries us when life becomes hell on earth. I mean, even before you call your pastor or your therapist, is there a moment where you pause and say, I know this is rough, but a day is coming when everything will be made right. And great is the reward promised to me in heaven. Let me land the plane here. Praise him. If you want to start making your way up, feel free. I don't think Jesus says that we should chase after persecution like it's a good thing to have. We shouldn't pursue it and we shouldn't provoke it either. But if we are doing it right, I think the world is going to have a problem with the Jesus that shines through us. Because Jesus doesn't only say, I love you, I love you, I love you, I save you, I save you, I save you. But he also says, before you can have that relationship with me, you need to look in the mirror and own up to the fact that you are very broken very guilty you need to own up to the fact that some of the things you most want in this world are wrong in the eyes of God that some of the choices you've made have been an affront and an offense to the holy God who made you that the things you fight to defend are indefensible before a holy God 
that you're not just a victim of a broken and lost world. You're part of the ones who made it broken and lost. And if you do not come to Jesus from that place, you cannot have all of his benefits. That's the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he's not a giant teddy bear in the sky who promises good things, good things, good things. But he also says, I have come to stand in judgment over this world and then to save it. When we speak and when we act out of fidelity to Jesus Christ, some of what we have to say and do are going to cause a lot of problems between us and the world around us. We should always be loving and gracious towards everyone. There's no other option but that. Sometimes the world's rejection of Jesus will be aimed at you and me. And if that never happens, pause and consider how faithfully you represent him who the world hates. I think it's time for the church to stop pursuing popularity and relevance and an empty kind of peace with the world and begin really engaging in a witness that brings lost people to the feet of the cross, helps them understand that there is a way to redemption. And his name is Jesus Christ. We don't stand for a position or a platform, but we stand for the person of Jesus. Our hope is placed in him. It's the only place real hope for people can be found. And if we do that faithfully, persecution will come. And as it comes, bear it with joy. Bear it with joy. I want to invite you to just bow and pray with me. I think that what Jesus is really saying to us this morning is, will you live loyally for my sake? Don't just be troublemakers, but will you be loyal to me? And will you pay the price that comes for that loyalty? It is not an easy world to be loyal to Jesus anymore. Where will you fall? When those forks in the road come, which way will you walk? So I'll leave it to you to just sit and uh, reflect on that particular issue in your own life. I want to give us just a minute to listen to the voice of God. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.